days go to 11. Once again, I'm Nathan Bell. Greg Dutcher in the house. Greg, what's going on, man? Dude, I'm feeling a little bit uh, like it's an ominous day because my 17-year-old daughter reminded me uh, that the, the day we're recording this is March 15th. The Ides of March. Ides of March. And um, Etu Brute That's and right. all that good stuff. But um, I only thought about that 10 minutes ago when I left the house. And uh, <laughs> So you what, haven't really had an ominous day. No, just wanted to say something that sounded very smart and literary. That's right. Uh, to impress our guest, but I know he's not impressed. <laughs> but uh, it felt good just to hear the Ides of March. That's right. Like that. And so excited to have our guest back, Joe Thorne. Joe, how are you doing today? I'm sorry. Would you guys say something? I wasn't paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> you talking about something about the hides of yes. March or something? <laughs> yes, the hide. It's like March Madness, but okay. Yeah, I'm know. definitely not into that. So. <laughs> That's great. Um, now, Greg, I understand that in anticipation of Joe's call-in, we've had another strike. Yeah, Joe, uh, forgive us for this, man. We, we, we've kind of made a commitment. Uh, to all of our listeners, uh, if anybody wants to call in the these go to eleven uh, yeah. voicemail hotline, we just have agreed as long as they you know they 're not saying incredibly awful things um, right. we 'll play it and this guy That's comes good. comes about as close as, as we can, <laughs> but I think stays within the line we 've got a little bit of a we think of him as a heckler, I think he thinks of himself as a prophet. Um, the truth is uh, it 's not in the middle it 's on our side, but nevertheless. <laughs> We're going to play him somehow. Um, he called into our voicemail this morning, Joe. He got word that Joe Thorne was going to be on our podcast. And uh, listen, we're just going to play it, brother. And uh, thank you for your patience with us. All right. it, here we go. This is the uh, the Reverend James King. Oh, it's the Reverend James King from the James King, King James, uh, Bible-believing, teaching, preaching ministries. Friends, I'm not here tonight. Out of my own accord. I won't be sharing my own opinion. No, I'm here as an authorized spokesman for the Lord Jesus. And I'll be sharing his opinion tonight, friends. That's right. See, these two fools on this anti-God cast have a, another special guest on tonight. Have you, have you ever noticed whenever they have a guest, they call him special? Oh, friends, the only special thing about this guest is that he's one of Satan's favorite agents. <laughs> a, a, a vile missionary for the kingdom of darkness. That's right. I got my eye on you, Mr. Joe Thorne. More importantly, the Lord Jesus has his eye on you, and he knows of your little plots and plans to overthrow the kingdom of God and usher in your own uh, uh, heavily bearded army of darkness. (laughs) Friends, have you ever considered this so-called pastor has been outed by the Almighty himself by virtue of his last name? Friends, he's not Joe Prophet or Joe Halo. No, he doesn't bear a godly last name like yours truly, King. His name says it all, doesn't it? Joe Thorne. (laughs) That's right, friends. Go back when Adam and Eve sinned. What did God curse the ground with? Say it to me now. Thorne! (laughs) Not convinced yet? Well, Well, think about the book of Joshua, friends. Remember when God told his people to drive out those vile squatters that had the nerve to hang out in the Holy Land? Uh, you remember they they were the the Hittites and the uh, 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 tights and uh, whatever you know they were those uh, rock and roll musicians, and Democrats and environmentalists. <laughs> what did God say would happen if His people didn't drive them out? I'll tell you, friends. Joshua twenty three says it. I'll read it to you in the authorized. Says they shall become snares and traps t- under you, scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes. Oh. 
Don't be deceived, friends. This man is a thorn, all right, if I ever saw one. And just like the Apostle Paul, when he was writing the Elizabethan English New Testament, <laughs> he asked God to remove what from him? Say it to me now, a thorn. Oh, friends, it's Joe Thorne, such an easy target. There's so many obvious signs of satanic identification with this man. Well, we could talk about his unruly beard. I wouldn't be surprised if he's hiding the Ark of the Covenant in that tangled mess. And friends, this is a tiny, tiny, puny little man. Oh, man. In fact, my sources tell me he's so puny, he actually does uh, uh, backflips underneath his own bed. <laughs> See, that's why you'll, you'll never see this man preaching socks, friends. I'm told he preaches in sandals. Can you imagine anything more ungodly than preaching in sandals? <laughs> oh, friends, you know why he won't wear socks like godly men do? Because if he pulled up his socks even an inch, he'd be completely blind. <laughs> friends, I don't want to just talk about his hideous beard or his tiny stature. Oh, friends, the most vile aspect of this so-called Pastor Joe Thorne is his ink. That's right, friends. He has more ink on him than a liberal big city newspaper. <laughs> See, he proudly flaunts the devil's branding on his own body, friends. You know what he has stamped on his left hand? He has four numbers. 1689. That's right. A year commemorating the so-called London Baptist Confession of Faith. In other words, one of Satan's favorite holidays. <laughs> We're happy to get another one of his uh, heretical faith statements into print. Well, I got news for you, Mr. Joe Thorne, in my side. You be careful if you ever come down south not to wander too close to the proximity of the King James Bible Tabernacle. See how people don't take too kindly to those who are out to flaunt what you call your liberty, but what the Bible calls licentiousness. Licentious, you know what it's called. Well, that's right. So you might find yourself one day strapped down to one of our exorcism stretch racks in the <laughs> tabernacle basement. Of course, we'd have your disgusting beard plucked out hair by hair and your tattoo. Oh, we wouldn't remove it, Mr. Thorne. No, not one bit. So we're going to leave you with that vile stamp just like the marker cane. But we will change the last two numbers. See, we'll be able to leave the 16, but the 89 will be changed. Can you guess what, Mr. Thorne? That's right, to 11. 1611, God's favorite year. And underneath it, we'll stamp Leviticus 19.28, which forbids tattoos. Oh, but the rest of you friends are invited any time to the King James Bible Tabernacle where we preach the sweet love of Jesus. Amen. Oh, man. Joe, I, our apologies, man. That was... I mean, I mean, are, are you all right after that diatribe? Well, you... I mean, I, you know, I'm a sensitive guy. You know? <laughs> I mean, I thought I thought we were going to chill and hang out, and you just like totally Janet Mefford me yeah. here <laughs> on, on your your podcast, man. I I'm I, I don't I don't really know what to say. Oh, me, I, I'll tell you what, though, just to give you a little bit of, of you know 21st century advice. Um, you know, you can set a time limit on your voicemail recording. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it, it's especially helpful when you're dealing with long-winded preacher boys. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you can you he's he's not leaving a message. He's preaching. He's doing the chicken walk, southern chicken walk preacher <laughs> oh, while he he's is, on the man. phone. You can definitely definitely tell. But I, I had a hard time. I had a hard time understanding him. I, yeah. I don't know if it was the sound of the redneck in the background <laughs> or like, what it was. Maybe it was the. It sounded like he was talking through a tin can with a, with a string. Yeah. Like it, like I've had better reception. 
I've had better reception on my Nokia back in like uh, 2001. So I, I, it was hard. I heard, a, I heard a little bit. I heard a little bit of what he said. Wow. Um, but it, it, let me just address um, a, a couple of things here. Um, what did he say? He said that uh, something about me wearing sandals. Yeah. Somebody, All right. I, I mean, is that Listen, true, Joe? Uh, okay. I don't even wear shorts. Yeah. <laughs> I have a moral objection to men wearing shorts wow. outside of their appropriate context, which would be the beach. Yes. Uh, working out. Yep. Mowing the lawn. Yeah. Otherwise, cover up those nasty sticks. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to see men's legs, especially Man. me. So I don't wear shorts. I definitely don't wear sandals. But if I'm honest, um, the reason I, I – maybe not the reason, but – you know, just maybe just 99% of the reason I don't wear sandals is because I don't have toenails on my big toes. No way. So they just look like quarters of hot dogs. Oh. Sticking <laughs> sandals. It is disgusting. And I'm not joking. I'm not wow. being a character like that redneck windbag sounded like a character. <laughs> I'm saying that that is truth. Mm. I speak truth here. So, wow. Uh, wow, yeah. Joe. That is cool, man. I um, I feel like compelled to share things about, you know, me, um, but I won't do that. But I, I think what you <laughs> oh, said listen, about can, the toenails, wow. I will, um, I will outdo you. Stuff. Listen, I don't make me talk about when my nipples were pierced in the <laughs> because I'll go there. I will go. Nothing better than being uh, a fat guy at a, at a piercing studio with your shirt off and a big, hairy, grizzly Adams-looking guy uh, putting clamps on your nipples while 15-year-old girls walk in giggling to watch. That's how you learn humility, brother. Oh, That's my goodness. So you, you, you just gave us a, a new little um, church discipline protocol, I think, that uh, you, you just laid down for as well. Uh, they were. There, there's a couple guys I think that would work well for. Uh, one of them is my co-host, but that's um, <laughs> that's something we'll talk about after the podcast. That's a whole uh, different story, right there. <laughs> no, Joe. Again, uh, you know what? We'll make sure that you hear that message a little better. We'll, we'll send it to you so you can fully appreciate it, um, you know, on your own. But yeah, you you, you caught the it gist sounded, of it. It sounded like somebody was playing the movie Deliverance through a walkie-talkie. <laughs> that's what it sounded like. You know what? That's pretty much what was happening. <laughs> okay, all right, yeah, then, that's, good. Then I, I got it. I was holding up the cell phone to the microphone because that's how high tech we are tonight, and uh, that's what you heard. So uh, there we go, Nathan. <laughs> Note to self, right? So notice that. It's a Joe Thorne reference. Indeed. Note that's to right. self to uh, to fix that. So. <laughs> oh man, I, I don't I don't know where we're gonna go I from know. here. <laughs> it's like I, yeah. So Easter. <laughs> yeah, I think we need to drop the mic. And just end it right there, man. No, we'll we'll try to press on. That's right. Um, Joe, we're so excited to have you on and uh, to be talking about Easter. Easter, of course, um, a, a week from s- this coming Sunday. Um, so we're, we're coming down to the wire on that one. And um, Joe, we uh, just had some thoughts and questions that we wanted to uh, talk to you about. Last year, um, we actually had uh, Jeff Krotz, one of our regular pastors who we had on, um, talking to us and, uh, we thought this would just be such a great topic to speak with you about. Um, so just uh, first question for you, Joe, how do you handle Easter pastorally? I mean, do you feel like there's any pressure to make it special or, um, different or try to one up yourself from years past? Um, well, 
it, it's it's easy for us because we don't observe the Popish calendar. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wait, actually, so, Joe, I think you want to say Romish. Um, yes, I guess Popish I, is, is good too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, um, honestly, we we don't follow the church calendar um, in, in its entirety for sure. Okay. Uh, just historically, Baptists and Presbyterians haven't on theological grounds, but. Um, we do uh, observe uh, Easter. We even have a Good Friday service. Okay, we're not we're not opposed to that, uh, and we do we do Christmas. So, um, that but that's about it. And uh, our Easter service is identical to every other service mm-hmm. uh, of the year. Uh, we don't make anything special in the service out of our Christmas service, or you know, we celebrate Advent. Mm-hmm. But each one of those four Sundays uh, is just very similar to every other uh, Sunday of the year. The only difference is, is that, you know, thematically or topically, we're focused on passages that relate to either the incarnation or the resurrection. Mm. So, um, yeah, we, I, don't, I don't feel any pressure to outdo because we don't put I – mean, you guys haven't been to our church, but our small church is – pretty simple it's yeah. it's pretty basic uh we 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 sing a lot of songs we sing about six songs we um everybody sings there's no solos or anything mm-hmm. um we uh we read a lot of scripture we do responsive readings we do the lord's supper every sunday and we preach it and um so there's prayer and all that stuff and that's the same stuff that we do um on on easter uh, knowing that more people are turning out for church uh, because it's a it's a holiday and there's enough of a hunger for some kind of religious token to be you know had sure. during this time of year. Uh, we definitely make sure that it is as basic and comprehensible as as it can be while we're uh, unpacking the scriptures. So um, yeah, we I don't really feel any pressure. Uh, I, I, to be honest, when it rolls around to Advent or Easter. Um, if, if I'm just totally honest, I, I just kind of don't like it. Yeah, um, yeah. It's like, you know, like I, I spent a year in the book of – over a year in the book of Exodus. I spent over a year in the book of First John. And I, I like going – then we do a thematic series as well. We'll do the Ordo Salutis. I just did the five solas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like doing that stuff. I don't like being forced into a box. And so right. – when that time of year comes around, it's like, now you have to preach on the resurrection. Well, I, technically, I preach on the resurrection every week. Right. <laughs> but now I've got to. So, and then it's like, so do I, do I, what do I, do I need to do something different? I mean, I, do I preach on the resurrection, but go to weird passages? And so I guess there's a little bit of, I don't know if it's pressure or if it's just kind of inner, inner, um, inner anxiety just about, my, it's like kind of personal issues yeah. Yeah, that I, I I tend to struggle with, but in general, I, I don't I don't feel too much pressure. Maybe just a little bit of frustration. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, I bet some of our listeners heard you mention uh, the fact that you guys do uh, communion each week, and it was uh, Howard Griffin, right? Uh, uh, was that the guy's name? Mm-hmm. Forgive me, Howard, if I'm wrong on that. Not that he's listening, but he was an author uh, we had on uh, with PNR back mm-hmm. in the fall who wrote a book called Spreading the Feast. Yep. And um, had some really great thoughts, Joe. And my, my sense is, having heard you preach a few times and talk about this, you two would probably track well. Uh, their church does communion every week as well. But just just give us the sense. Like at our church, um, in my pastor's office right now, uh, in our church here in Maryland, we do communion once a month. I always tell our church uh, that the Bible doesn't say how often to have it, just as often as we do it to obviously do it in um, – uh, memory of him, but just for folks listening, uh, be really curious. Joe, why do you guys do it each week? 
Yeah, for for us, uh, we didn't start that way. When, when we planted Redeemer, uh, we did it once a month, the mm-hmm. first Sunday of every month. Yeah. So I, I don't think it's an issue to break fellowship over. Um, I do think it matters. I think we ought to take the ordinances or the sacraments very, very seriously, um, just like we do every means of grace. And so as we you know, talked through it, as elders prayed through it, uh, we all came to the conclusion uh, that the Scripture commands us to do certain things when we gather for worship. We believe in the regulative principle, which means that the only essential elements included in corporate worship are those things prescribed by the Word of God. Mm-hmm. So you don't introduce foreign elements that are essential elements to the service unless it is prescribed. So we know what we've got, right? We've got the reading of the Word, the preaching of the Word. We have prayers, songs, uh, you know, these kinds of things, and the ordinances. And all of these things are commanded, and we do all of those things every Sunday except one. Gotcha. It, like gotcha. we do all of these things every Sunday, except one, the very sacred tradition that Jesus himself gave us and told us to do. And as we thought about it, we couldn't come up with a reason to not do it every week. Uh, there just isn't a reason. In fact, the only reason that that anyone could bring up was, well, might it not lose its, its, um, its special significance if we do it every week? Right. And the response though naturally is, well, like, reading and preaching the Bible, you know, <laughs> right. because it's not, it's, it's not that there is a, a simple reading that we do every week with the Lord's Supper that we merely repeat. Um, every, every Sunday, we're in a different passage of Scripture for that um, preparation of the Lord's Supper. That passage is unpacked, it is applied, and it, we are directed to the Lord's Supper. So, um, it doesn't become rote, and it turns out our people loved it. They, a lot of them were asking for it, and um, it has become uh, very, very special for us. So that's, that's why we do it. We think we're commanded to do these things in corporate worship. Uh, there's no good reason to say we shouldn't do this one every week. Um, in fact, there are a number of reasons that we should be doing it every week. Interesting, Joe. Um, uh, thank you. And, and I think that helps me get a, a sense uh, I, I got some uh, jealousy going on over here, brother, because I I do stress over Easter. I do think it's a self-imposed stress. Actually, our churches sound somewhat similar. Um, I I think I feel a combination frustration like you do in that um, – who said this years ago? It might have been MacArthur or, or somebody that said everything fights against exposition. You know, Advent, uh, Easter, Mother's Day. There, there's always these external – pressures, expectations, real or perceived, that um, sort of derail you from going through a book, like you said, Exodus or First John, um, and you're always kind of thinking about that. So I, I track with you there. For whatever reason, um, I always feel like uh, Easter, there's an expectation that the service be extra special, you know, which I, I realize is, is rather foolish. For one thing, you, you don't want to suggest that the other 51 Sundays are somehow wrote ritual and ordinary. And I think you just uh, uh, spoke to that very well. But I, um, I love that you just say you go into Easter. So, so you do make adjustments. It sounds to me like you have, can I call this, Joe, somewhat of an evangelistically accommodating approach because in our culture there is a greater willingness uh, maybe for even unchurched, unbelieving people to go to church? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that that's a, an evangelistic accommodation. Um, you could talk about it in terms of cultural leverage. I mean, people are talking about Jesus and the resurrection, or they are at least 
aware, at least in our city, our city is predominantly Catholic. Yeah. Um, so, or lapsed Catholic. And yeah. uh, so people are kind of aware. They know, like, I'm going to come to church and I'm going to hear something about Jesus. But what we find, because like a lot of the guys at the cigar shop now are coming to Redeemer, non-Christian guys uh, coming to Redeemer uh, every so often. Yeah. And so they'll show up. And the one thing that they say is, man, like I never heard this stuff in the church that I went to when I was growing up. Yeah, Like yeah. nobody ever unpacked the word and explained it to me and pressed it on me the way that you are. Um, and so, yeah, we, we leverage, we leverage uh, cultural realities and practices to bring the gospel to bear in people's lives. That's, I don't feel bad about that. In fact, I think it would be uh, potentially foolish to ignore Christmas and Easter yeah. uh, when it, because they are so um, so connected to the core of what we actually believe. So it becomes an opportunity for us to say, this is what we're all about for our culture. Maybe it's on a, a Sunday or maybe in the religious culture, it's just this Sunday of the year, but for us, it's every Sunday. Now, when it comes to Mother's Day and Father's Day, ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah, ain't no right, Mother's right. Day. Nobody's getting a rose. Yes. Not, I might preach on hell, yeah. uh, but <laughs> I'm definitely... I'm not. Uh, I'm not doing any of that stuff. That's awesome, Greg. That's I, awesome. I'm. I'm getting flashbacks to when uh, you preached on the cows of Bashan. Oh, right. During Mother's Day. Was that? Was that Mother's Day? Yeah, we yes. went through Amos. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. That That's was. I it. forgot about that, Nathan. That was Mother's Day. <laughs> Just what you would expect. I mean, you fat cows of Bashan. <laughs> that. I mean, we wanted to put that on our church sign, dude, and everything, but uh, you know, trustees fought that. But great marketing campaign. Yeah. Right there. <laughs> A little Driscollian, uh, yeah. <laughs> a, little, a little edgy. Yes. Your face. Yeah, that's what uh, what would Ted Clark call that, right, Nathan? On a happy red, uh, uh, a little Drisky business. That's there, right, risky Drisky. Um, yeah, but that's got to be uh, wonderful for you, Joe. That it sounds like you 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 might be a little more alert to the unbeliever who's there on Easter. I mean, I think in most churches, even the most nominal of churches, um, you look out at the crowd on Easter Sunday. There's always you know, siblings, parents, grandparents, uh, you know, Christmas and Easter attenders that are there. Um, and so uh, I am glad to hear you say that, Joe, and that fits my sense of you. I, I was at a church years ago. This must have been, oh, 15, 16 years ago, where I visited another church that shall not be named on Easter. And uh, the guy <laughs> almost had a chip on his shoulder about it. I mean, nothing in the bulletin, nothing in the music. Um <laughs> And when he got up, he said, well, um, let me say, uh, I'm not going to say he has risen because the Bible never commands me to say that. I will say, I acknowledge on our Western calendars, it's Easter Sunday, but we're preaching on generous giving. Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> I sort of looked around and, you know, that kind of fit the church culture to, to me. Their sense was, hey, we're the guys that are the hardcore, you know, sort of uh, chosen few that that don't concede to these silly things. But uh, was that the Reverend King's Church? <laughs> <laughs> I'll say it was suspiciously like the King James Bible Tabernacle. Uh, but I better stop there, um, lest I incriminate myself and other people. But um, interesting, Joe, uh, how you uh, do that. Uh, just just out of curiosity, Christmas, like when when it's coming close to Christmas, does your congregation want? ask for Christmas music or does do they not really care or do you do it without much commitment? How do you guys handle that? Well, yeah, our, so we plan out our worship services um, four or five weeks in advance. Uh, another elder and I meet with the worship leaders yep. and we 
we put the liturgies together in advance, and the songs are chosen uh, as they relate to the themes that I'm preaching on. And so my sermons are mapped out at least six months in advance, if not a year in advance, that people can, you know, so the worship leaders and everybody kind of knows where we're going. Sure. And so it's no different than any other uh, time of year. We're like, what songs fit here? And we love the great Christmas hymns and carols uh, that are biblical, um, like, Mary, did you know? Uh No, no, no. No. (laughs) Talk about that, Joe. That's actually come up before on a previous podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I'm going to punch somebody. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do it. No, I mean, you know, people love that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I gotta, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm always honest. I dig the little drummer boy. Do you? I, I do. Not the David Bowie version. I mean, that's cool and all, yeah. but um, no, August Burns Red has a great instrumental version. Oh, interesting. So it, look up. Go, so if, if you're listening, um, while you're listening, because you're probably at your computer not working like you're supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> Go on to YouTube, August Burns Red, Little Drummer Boy. You're welcome. Anyway, um, (laughs) yeah, like, you know, um, Hark the Herald Angel Sings. We sing a lot of those Christmas carols. And again, it's because they are biblical, they are true, uh, they have some great melodies. But we also sing, you know, like on any given Sunday, we are singing mostly hymns, um, a lot of classics, and some of the newer ones. Uh, but we also sing Dustin Kensrue because ain't nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm, sure. I definitely don't hate Dustin Kensrue. Yeah. That guy, I love his music. So um, we have a mix of stuff that we do. It all has a very similar feel when our musicians do it. Um, but uh, yeah, mo- mostly hymns and yeah, Christmas carols are fine. And so this Easter, sometimes we'll just interrupt our, our the series that we're in to hit Easter Sunday. Gotcha. But this year we did a, a, a short series called uh, Death and Life. And it's just covering the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and then the resurrection of Christ. And uh, that's it. Awesome. Hey, and Mary, did you know? Thoughts on it? Uh, well, she she pretty much knew, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I got you. Well I mean, said. She, didn't, she, she knew. She didn't always understand. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, I think she knew. And it's honestly it, – the melody you know there's just there's there's a lot wrong with a lot of songs and sometimes great lyrics to some of the hymns are betrayed by colossal failures in melody yes couldn't agree more man so i mean i just you know once you hit 1850 the melodies are not all of them, but many of them are so bad. Yeah. Um, so, for what it's worth, I'm not a I'm not a fan. But that's one of the running jokes uh, yeah. every every Christmas is is where are we going to fit in? Mary, did you know? Right, right. That's <laughs> funny. Well, I just ask because that issue uh, comes up. We did a whole um, podcast what Nathan a week or two before Christmas yeah. with Matt Smith, who's a local pastor. He's a worship guy, um, and uh, we were talking about those kinds of songs, how to work them in. Um, and uh, yeah, that that runs into some interesting things. We um, were just saying we did the little drummer boy a few years ago. That sort of slipped in without my notice. I probably would have stopped it, um, but uh, you know, it wasn't the end of the world. But it did look funny to look at these, particularly at our eight thirty service, which is our older, gray haired, more reserved group. 
Uh, and the only thing up on the slide was pa rum pa pum pum rum pa pum pum, uh, and dude, <laughs> no, that no. was that no, no, was it's incredible. Not, it is not good for congregation. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Never, we would not do that song at Redeemer. I like the song. I I, yeah. I love death metal. I listen to death metal, but not on Sunday. Yeah. Not yeah. not during the gathering. That's not. We're not doing it then. And so, yes. little drummer boy's fine, and right. it's in my earbuds. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I. I just have to say that uh, can so relate to you on the melody thing. I don't know if you feel this way, and if you don't, that's fine. Um, that's why I, I, I we have never uh, sung uh, "Rock of Ages" in its traditional uh, melody because to me that's one of those. This is just to me something about that original melody. Um, I don't know, almost betrays, uh, as you said, the 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 tone that the lyrics suggest to me. This wonderfully contemplative song. On the um, on you know on on Christ's death, James Ward has a good version, um, and uh, some others that I've heard that I think have rescued that song from a, a campy carousel like melody. I don't know if you feel that way. Not so much on that one, but I, I agree in general. Uh, and you know, again, we we hit we hit the mid nineteenth century, and uh, you know, we've got a lot of people writing songs that have not been trained. Uh, you know, classically. And so everything starts to sound like Barnum and Bailey. It starts to right, sound right. like the the easiest, most accessible um, level of culture around. And it's not that that's wrong in and of itself, but it's just not very good yes. in my opinion. Yes. So I think, you know, it's like Benjamin Keach was, uh, was a famous uh, London Baptist pastor. Uh, my son, Elias uh, Keach Thorne, is named after Benjamin's son, Elias cool. Keach. So, uh, but Benjamin Keach wrote a whole hymnal and and some of these songs are dark and heavy but the melody is almost trite and light wow. and it doesn't i mean keach was a baller when it comes to theology wow. uh, uh, but when it came to the, the <laughs> tunes that he put to his songs it didn't always work so we really benefit and we do we do use new arrangements to some hymns um if if we like it we keep it but sometimes we just mix it up and there are some there's some really strong um, new melodies, if not just new arrangements for songs that um, go a long, long way in the life of the congregation. Interesting. Hmm. That's really cool. Um, question for you about uh, Good Friday, since you mentioned you do a uh, Good Friday service. Does does your Good Friday service tend to mirror years past? I mean, I, I know churches that every single year, if you go to this church, you're going to hear the six sayings of Christ on the cross. Um, and do, do you tend to do something similar to that or does it vary year to year on what you would do for your Good Friday service? It's a little too negative for us. We do the six sayings of Osteen. <laughs> but, you know, it's, 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 it's called Good Friday, so yeah. we want people to feel good. Yes. You, don't, you know? Yes. So in other words, you guys, if you do the Osteen, you have the every day is a Good Friday service. Isn't that oh, ab- right. absolutely. <laughs> Couldn't resist it. Just it was right there. Had to hit it. Um, I'm, I'm your sure best we- Friday now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, we got to have the cheesy music playing at this point, so. I don't um I don't recall if I've done the six say I probably did and we we do it every year. Um but no every year is different. And so we have a, a, a highly structured liturgical format that we follow every Sunday. When it comes to a Christmas Eve service or a Good Friday service, we simplify everything. We only go for an hour. Our worship services are an hour and a half normally. So we just do an hour-long service. I preach for 30 minutes tops. Mm-hmm. Usually it's less than that. 
And uh, the format is guilt, grace, gratitude. Mm. And so there is the reading of the law. There is uh, an understanding of our sinfulness before God. This is reflected in songs and readings and prayers. Uh, and then there is grace. And this is where the cross is highlighted. This is where the preaching of the word is. And then we respond in gratitude, meaning faith, repentance, and songs of praise to God. And so every time it's different um, – this Good Friday, uh, we're going to zero in, obviously, on the death of Christ, but uh, we're going to do something that we haven't done before. Um, we're going to talk about some of the details of the crucifixion, mm-hmm. meaning like this is what happened when a man was crucified, mm-hmm. uh, but we're going to then immediately go to the far worse uh, pain that Christ felt, the true suffering, a spiritual suffering where the wrath of God uh, was uh, absorbed by him on the cross on behalf of the elect. So um, we, want, we want to press home the horror of the, of the crucifixion, but much darker and harder than that is the wrath of God it, itself. Mm. Um, so we'll be focusing on propitiation quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's great, Joe. Um, yeah, we, we've done some similar things. You're right. It's such a great – uh, yeah, because I always feel if you stop at the physical suffering, you know, and there's that cool article that's been around for a long time now from the uh, what it's I think it's the Journal of American Medicine where yeah. they they sort of go into detail uh, on mm-hmm. the nature of death by crucifixion. But you're right to to always feel like you've just gotten the 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 dressing. It, it sounds almost trite to say that in light of how awful those physical sufferings must have been. But of course, to hit um, as you just well said that he absorbed. Uh, God's wrath uh, for us, uh, really, really, you, you, to me, that's the only thing that makes sense of his agony in the garden. Right. Um, obviously, it, it wasn't simply the physical um, uh, brutality of what he was facing. Um, you know, Socrates faced death like that. It was very brave, were, were said. So, you know, he's not braver than Jesus. Uh, there's something much, much deeper going on. I'd love to ask you, Joe, um, kind of putting you on the spot here, but uh, something that I have wrestled with now, I mean, I'm 45 years old. I've been pastoring um, for uh, 18 years or so now. And honestly, I, I wish I was closer to an answer. I'm a little closer. So maybe you can help me as I love to drop this on uh, other guys I know that think about the word and preach and teach. Um, th- I'd call this the psychology of Satan um, in the – uh, events leading to the cross. Um, you know, when I was a young believer and I was listening to a lot of Carmen, uh, <laughs> outing myself there, the, um, the, the, the general sense I had, even from that famous sermon, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming, um, etc. My, my general sense used to be that Jesus died and Satan wanted that to happen. He was working overtime and, I guess something that could lend scriptural support to that or a way people could argue it is, you know, when the gospels tell us that, uh, Satan fully entered Judas, um, the night of Christ's arrest, uh, seeming to trigger the events leading to, you know, Christ being, uh, apprehended in the garden, uh, bound, you know, taken to his six bogus trials and all that. Um, so I always interpreted the resurrection as sort of, the victory that shocked the kingdom of darkness, etc. Um, and then, as I studied the scripture more, I started thinking, wait a minute, Satan knew the Bible well. Um, I, I, as I've preached on the temptation of Christ before, Joe, I've, I've always taken that third temptation uh, to be somewhat of a, uh, 
of a shortcut that Satan's offering, not that he had the power to, uh, but offering a shortcut to uh, the same thing the Father had offered Jesus. Ask of me, son, Psalm 2, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. And, um, of course, the way that Jesus will inherit them is ultimately with his own death. Um, yeah, in Revelation 5, you know, with his blood, he purchased men for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So you've got Satan, in essence, offering him the same thing without a cross. Then uh, perhaps the one that grabs me the most is at uh, Caesarea Philippi when uh, Jesus, of course, asks, who do people say that I am? And they offer their answers, John the Baptist, Elijah, etc. Then who do you say that I am? And everybody, you know, all preachers have preached, wow, Peter in one second says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then a few moments later, it seems, um, Jesus calls him Satan. And it's because Peter objects uh, to Jesus going to the cross and says, I'm never going to let that happen, ever. Um, And Jesus calls him Satan, which makes me scratch my head and think, wait a minute. Did Satan not want Jesus to go to the cross? Uh, Last thing I'll say is, uh, not that this is a... uh, is you know, something we check for biblical exposition, but in Gibson's Passion movie, my sense is his own interpretation was more the latter, that uh, Satan did not want Jesus to go to the cross because he screams in the scene when Jesus dies. Um, and I'd just love to get your thought on that, Joe. And uh, what, what do you think about the psychology of Satan as it's presented to us in the Bible? Did he or did he not want Jesus to go to the cross? Well, let's say a couple of things about Satan. Um, like you said, he knows the word of God, um, and he he has a lot of knowledge. But like uh, like many finite beings, uh, men in particular, uh, he has knowledge, and uh, but he doesn't have trust. He he has a kind of understanding of what God has said to be true, but he doesn't necessarily believe it. And so he doesn't. I don't even think he has assent in a lot of these ways. Um, so I think, yeah, he has he has knowledge of the character of God, the promises of God. But like many theistic Satanists today, they would say, "God, no, God is real. He is a real God, but he's a bad God, mm-hmm. and we want to. We can't trust him. He is all about oppression." So. Um, the devil has knowledge. He doesn't have faith. He doesn't necessarily believe, mm-hmm. right? So, um, does does he does he think does he really believe that that God is going to win that he's doomed to lose, or does he in his in his unbelief has he confused himself and deluded himself into thinking I can somehow win? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know, and I think it's best to not jump into the mind of Satan and try to guess what he is, you know, thinking or feeling if the scripture doesn't tell us. So I would just say, um, based on general observations of the few things that scripture does tell us that one, um, I believe that Satan has been out to destroy the seed of the woman from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there has been a, a, a satanic plot to stop Christ. And at every step along the way, um, Satan, I think, is trying to do that. Um, I think he is for the death of Jesus, and perhaps he thought that even in the crucifixion, uh, it could be the end and and not the victory. Uh, To jump into Gibson's movie, when Satan screams, when Christ dies, perhaps, and again, we're just guessing here, perhaps in Gibson's perspective, he then realizes that he has been overcome, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that 
that Christ actually did make full atonement there. So we, we don't know what Gibson was thinking, but um, I, I think that the devil is definitely for the the usurpation of Christ's authority and and his demise. I think the the difference is that when you're talking about Peter and Satan, so uh, you know I think Satan wants Jesus dead. Peter doesn't want Jesus to die, and Jesus says, you know, Gevek von mir, Satan, which is the only German I can say. Um, <laughs> Sounds he good. says, get, get behind me, Satan. It's not because Peter didn't want Jesus to die like Satan didn't want Jesus to die. I think the point is that Peter was getting in the way of Christ's work, mm-hmm. and Satan is constantly trying to get into the way of Christ's work. So by you trying to interfere and stop what I'm all about, you are acting according to satanic plots and designs. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I don't I think I think the devil wants wanted Jesus gone and, and dead. I think that's been the plan from the beginning, uh, when Christ finally did accomplish uh, redemption through the cross, Satan was was defeated. And I mean, I think, you know, throughout Christ's ministry, we see his interaction with Satan. He says in Luke at one point that um, he's like, hey, uh, you don't just show up and and take the strong man's stuff. First, you have to bind him. Yeah. Like Revelation. First, you have to bind oh, millennialism. Yeah. First, you have to bind him. <laughs> you bind him, and then you take what he thinks is his. Uh, and then after that, he sends out the 70, and they come back, and they're like, I can't believe we were doing all this. And he said, yeah, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Like Satan is being torn down throughout mm-hmm. Christ's ministry and in, in his death, it was over. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, well, well said, Joe. I think those are really, really good thoughts. I, um, I'm going to throw those into the mix as I continue to wrestle with it. I, I think a lot of what you said, um, I would, uh, I would, I would concur with, um, particularly the thought that we really don't know Satan's psychology. I think it's always dangerous when you're preaching on what any character in the Bible feels, unless it is so explicit, um, you know, so many sermons I've heard they're 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 good, they're well delivered. I've heard youth pastors especially talk about what was in David's mind when he faced right, Goliath, right. and uh, don't do that. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> well, it's riveting, it's interesting, and then you step back and say, wait a minute, none of that is mentioned in the Bible. We really don't know. Uh, we know what he says. Um, and I think can make some fairly safe uh, uh, inferences. Um, I mean, just to put it out of the field of total conjecture, Joe, I, I view this as a mind-stretching activity that if it makes me more alert to Scripture than great. Mm-hmm. If it makes me get right. lost in the weeds, then it's not much use. But I have wondered before, is Satan a classic example of mixed motives um, that obviously, to the degree that he could understand that Christ's death is vicarious, um, is, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier, is what's going to provide the propitiation for our sins. Um, no, he would, I think we can safely say, not want that to occur. At right. the same time, to watch him get pummeled, to suffer, um, to be, uh, you know, uh, tested, as it were, uh, I think, again, I feel safe to say that there's a perverse pleasure he would feel in that. As you're right, sure. he, he hates Jesus, hates the Son of God. So uh, I think there are some some things going in there. The only other thing I've thought of, Joe, and I'll just mention this, is um, is it possible that uh, he thought the cross is what it would take uh, 
to get Jesus to ultimately deny the Father rather than to follow him down to the last minute. And again, I'm with you. The scripture doesn't say. So even for listeners, here's two pastors talking about it. I would always caution and say to the degree that asking these questions helps you think more deeply about scripture, um, about Christ, that's great. To the degree that you're trying to solve it when there's not a verse that's going to tell you, that can be unhealthy. Um, Right. I mean, just how how many of us in life have been told – this is going to be the outcome, yeah. but we don't believe it. Yes. We, we, st- we keep doing what we're doing, not believing what the doctor just told us. Yes. You know, my doctor said, if you, know, if you don't stop eating the junk you're eating, your blood pressure is going to continue to rise and you're going to have to go on medication. Yeah. And, I, and I, I said, I ain't got time for that. And, uh, and I'm not going on medication. And then six months later, he's like, well, your blood pressure is crazy. And uh, you don't have to go on medication. Yeah. So you know, I, I had – it's like I, I, I heard it. I was told it. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was right. And now I'm, I, I'm fine. I'm eating much better these days. Yeah. But we just don't believe it. it mm. you, can, you can have knowledge of something without assent and trust. Oh, well said. So good. Um, Joe, we do want to be uh, mindful of your time. But just um, one more uh, thought or question here as, we're, as we are entering um, – into uh, Easter and, you know, about two weeks out. Um, what are some things that stand out to you um, in the passion or the Easter narrative? Anything that just um, arrests you or has impacted you in your mm-hmm. preaching and your ministry? When it comes to the cross, I think the thing that um, is is so hard for me to understand and yet simultaneously gives me such joy is that the sovereign creator and ruler of all things, the one who upholds all things by the word of his knowledge, this God condescended to become human, to take on flesh, to suffer at the hands of wicked, ignorant fools. For me, he could have stopped it he, he, he could have destroyed everyone by thinking about it, and yet he willingly submitted himself out of a sense of love for the undeserving and out of a sense of, you know, this is going to bring greater glory to myself. Mm. That to me is astounding because when, when I see somebody getting wronged, uh, I want to write it, mm-hmm. and you know when 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 we suffer wrong, like my my inclination is is oh this guy wants to take my wallet, uh, I'm going to take his nose, like <laughs> yeah. that's that that's that's my gut reaction, mm-hmm. you know I want I want people to get their payback, I want I want to see justice happen, and yet Jesus like like a like a lamb silent before the slaughter, yeah. mm-hmm. he just took it and he he took it for. Us, I mean, because I believe in particular redemption, he took it for me mm-hmm. by name. That to me is I, – I, I have a hard time understanding that depth of love, and yet nothing gives me a greater sense of security and, um, and peace than knowing that, that that's the perfect demonstration of the Father's love. Yeah. Well said. So good. Thank you. Greg, same question. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's hard to improve on that. It really is. I I think uh, a couple of things. I'll move more to the the resurrection side because I think Joe has um, uh, spoken so well of of uh, of Christ's death. Um, 
some of these are lesser, but I think interesting and helpful. I, in the back of my mind, I always wondered, okay, it's awesome. Jesus rose. I mean, the tomb is empty. Um, a couple of things I've heard through the years. I don't know where I picked them up from who I've read uh, this or heard this, but just the fact that the stone is rolled away. Um, never really thought much about that. It's not that Jesus needed that to happen. Mm. It's not that we have a resurrected Jesus who is uh, trapped in a tomb. You know, if you think about right. it, he defeats death. Oh, right. I, I wish I could move that rock. <laughs> um, but that rock is just stuck there. I mean, he's he's. It, it, it's for us. Hmm. Uh, when you know Peter and behold, the angel, look, the, the one you're searching for is not here. He's risen. It's for Peter and John. Come see. Uh, yeah, to come see and look. Uh, that's just a neat thought to me. I guess related to that, I always did wonder. Um, I don't have the exhaustive list before me, but you've got Jairus's daughter um, in the Gospels. In Luke 7, you've got the widow at Nain's son who is raised, of course, famously, John 11. You have Lazarus. So part of me, when I was a young Christian, was always like, yeah, that's awesome. But didn't that happen before? And again, just through some good teaching and good good thinking I got, that those things were ultimately, yeah, they were awesome. They were miracles, but they weren't resurrections in mm-hmm. the sense that Jesus was. When Paul calls him the first fruits, he truly is the first fruit because the others were resuscitated. Mm-hmm. They did die at some point. Um, you know, Now, granted, when you're dead for four days like Lazarus, that's more than a dude flatlining at, right. uh, on an ER cot somewhere. Uh, which is pretty incredible itself. I love all those medical dramas where you know the guy's flatlining to bring him back. Lazarus is much more than that. We should be in awe of the miracle. Jesus uses it to teach about the resurrection. I, I understand those things. But even in there, he puts it on us. I am the resurrection and the life. Right. So that when Jesus comes back from death, it is never to die again. I just love that thought. Um, and the fact we've talked before that the women mm-hmm. were the witnesses, which... Why would you do that if you're making up the story? Yeah. To have, you know, they, they weren't qualified, sadly, in that day and age, very patriarchal, chauvinistic, really, uh, to offer testimony uh, mm-hmm. in, in a judicial setting. And all four Gospels, it's women. You know, it's almost like it actually happened that way. <laughs> and the Bible is telling the truth. If, if, Joe, is that too radical to say? <laughs> I Well, um, it is radical. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's true. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. Love that. Um, but, Joe, again, I know we're about to wrap up here. Thank you, man. Just loved. We've really wanted to get your thoughts on this because uh, we got a lot of great feedback when you were on last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there a lot of times we say, I wonder what Joe Thorne would say about that. And we've heard some of that tonight. So thank you. Thanks for having me, man. I'll come back anytime. Just let me know. Awesome. Really appreciate it. We're going to go ahead and uh, just sign off here. Gentlemen, we just rocked the Casper. Yes. These go to 11.